Well, good morning again. Hey, I uh, uh, wanted to mention, uh, Janet asked if for our potluck next week, uh, if y'all are bringing something that requires a serving spoon, maybe just bring one with you because we had a tub full of them somewhere, but who knows? So if you wouldn't mind, if you have something that requires that, just bring them with you. We'll make sure we wash it off and get it back to you and all that kind of things and, and that kind of stuff. We, uh, we do scrutinize that, by the way. So uh, we don't just, please don't just bring stuff and put it on the table. Um, but uh, uh, I know that sometimes it's very well-meaning, but sometimes you just never know. And, and then I have to hear about it. So just don't do that, please. But, uh, but anyway, we're going to start doing a book table so resources will become available again soon. And uh, all right, well, praise the Lord. Okay, so this morning, let's open up again to Revelation chapter 6. Chapter 6. Now, the Lamb who alone is worthy has been opening the seals, the seven seals, on a scroll that he has taken from his Father's hand. Uh, no one in, above, or beneath heaven was found worthy. It was just Jesus. Uh, because he shed his blood and because he ultimately paid the price, he ultimately is worthy to open and loose the seals on the scroll. And he's been doing this in succession. Uh, and in doing so, he's been bringing out a series of elements that have, um, uh, through which judgment has begun to come upon a rebellious world. Uh, and, and as always, I'll mention that there are differing views in regard to um, how certain things, what certain elements or periods of time in the book of Re Revelation are referred to by uh, words like tribulation, great tribulation, Daniel's 70th week, uh, all these different terms. Um, there are differing views on when certain elements or periods of time start and finish based on various uh, theologies rooted in when does the rapture happen and those kinds of things. Um, I, I've made a point of saying early on that I am pre-tribulational tri pre in my perspective, which means I believe that the rapture comes prior to the 70th week of Daniel starting. Uh, in other words, once we started looking at the seals unloosed, my view is we'd be gone already by this point. Uh, and my reason for that is, is, is there, there are a number of reasons why I hold that view, but one of the reasons why is because the question of God's wrath, while it is a point of contention based on various perspectives, uh, when does the wrath of God officially start? Those kinds of questions. Um, my view is is that since none of the seals can ultimately be opened except by the Lamb himself, meaning none of the events that take place or elements unfold that break forth from those broken seals, none of those things happen until he breaks them open and they only come about as he breaks them open. Uh, my view is, is that the entire 70th week of Daniel would qualify to fit under the, the category of, uh, of the time of tribulation. Um, now, people, of course, have differing views on that, and I respect that, and, and frankly, I, I get copies of very thick books explaining why I'm wrong about this, um, and I, I receive them. I'm reading. I'm actually reading a couple right now, and uh, uh, I'm, not, uh, I'm not averse to reading opposing views on things. I think it's, it's healthy and helpful to do that. If for no other reason, that if you hit things that you realize you never thought about, it gives you something new to think about. If, on the other hand, uh, you don't feel that the arguments hold uh, enough snuff compared to your own, then it firms up your own position. I think there's value in it if we're comfortable reading that. Uh, however, just so you know, for the sake of transparency, that's where I'm coming from. And so if I start using terminology or referring to things a certain way, you know my bias. Uh, I think it's, we all have them, and I'm, I'm open enough to admit mine. And so, therefore, if, if, I, if, I, if you don't agree with me, believe me, you don't have to leave. Uh, 
and I guess I should say, you know, there was a family here that we loved very much that was here for a while. And, um, and there came a point where the question of eschatology was a sticking point for them, and they held a different perspective. And they actually uh, invited me out for coffee one time and, and basically to ask me if it was okay for them to continue attending even though they held a different view. And I said, of course it is. You know, if you were, if you were part of a cult preaching a different gospel, then no, you wouldn't be welcome here or you'd have to, you know, we'd have to have some pretty s stiff guidelines on what you're talking about. But when it comes to peripheral issues, when does the rapture happen? I think it's important, but no one goes to heaven or hell based on whether they hold my view on the, the rapture, the tribulation, and so on. And so in that sense, it's peripheral. And there are other issues in Scripture that fit into that category. The gospel is non-negotiable, but there are a few things that are negotiable, and there are things that we're still waiting to see how things pan out. So that being said, I, I, I have no apologies for where I land on this because I've spent a lot of time and I've, I've arrived here on my own. But if you don't agree with me, that's fine. And from time to time when we do Q&As, you might ask a question in regard to that. We might have some dialogue that can be, uh, you know, helpful and, and educational in that. But uh, for everybody, for us all to, you know, consider things. But that being said, um, I bring that up because as we're moving into the section that we're in right now, where we, we begin to look at the sixth seal, we're moving into a period of time which at the very least puts us on the doorstep and based on your theology puts us in the period of time known as the Great Tribulation. We are at the very least on the doorstep of it. And let's read the passage and we'll see exactly where we are. Now we've read the first uh, four, uh, five seals actually to this point. Uh, the first five seals, of course, the first seal breaks as, as the lamb breaks it and the Antichrist comes on the scene. He will come as a peacemaker, although from heaven's perspective, he has really come to take peace from the earth. Ultimately, he is causing people to rally what, what ultimately will become a rebellion against Christ at his return, and this is him coming onto the scene. It doesn't mean this is when he's born. It doesn't even mean this is when he got involved in politics or anything, but it's when he now takes on the role of Antichrist, at the very least from heaven's perspective. But we understand based on the fact that he will sign a peace covenant with Israel for seven years, the signing of that covenant marks the beginning of Daniel's 70th week, as Daniel talks about in chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. I'll leave it to you to read those again or to listen to previous episodes, uh, or episodes, I'm so used to doing the daily thing, uh, <laughs> previous services where we've talked about it, but you can, you can kind of follow up on those a little bit and, 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 and revisit that. Um, but that's the first seal. The second seal brings about war. Now, war can be fought on a number of fronts, uh, as we've, in our current day, have come to realize. There's war on the battlefield, there's war in technology, there's all these kinds of things. Whether it is, and at some point, as we understand Daniel and what he has to say about the military campaigns of the Antichrist, we know that there is some all-out fighting and battles and military uh, exploits that go on during his, his time in, in, uh, in, in, in leadership. However, that does, is not necessarily limited to that. In other words, how is he going to rally the world together around him if he's, do, if he's bringing about war all the time? Well, it's not hard to imagine how through intrigue and subterfuge he can ultimately bring together nations uh, to rally together with him and to, to a point where they become beholden to him and even worship him as we'll see the book unfold. And so after war comes famine, uh, the price of food, uh, if calculations that have been done are correct, the price of food increases something like 12-fold. Uh, inflation is crazy out of control in this kind of thing. It, it costs a day's wages simply to buy some bread. And so it becomes a very difficult time in terms of the practical necessities of life under his reign. 
Uh, and then after we uh, come through that period of time, we find that death naturally follows afterward. The fourth horseman that comes out is a pale horse, and with him comes death, and death and Hades follow him. And so this, and this death, by the way, that takes place happens both through war and famine and pestilence and even the beasts of the earth. Now, people try to understand what, what that has to do or how that connects. It may be something as simple as the fact that his food becomes so scarce that even the animals are starting to get brazen and that kind of thing. We don't know exactly. But there is basically from all quarters difficulty and suffering that ultimately rises under his uh, under his dominion. Now, the next thing we see takes our attention, the next seal, the fifth seal, takes our attention off of the earth and brings us to heaven where we ultimately see these martyrs, those who were killed for holding to their faith during the time after the rapture, but during the tribulation period, but prior to the millennial kingdom. And they are under the altar, their lives an offering for Christ as they have stood for their faith and have not backed down and ultimately they were killed for it. And they cry out to the Lord, how long will you refrain from bringing justice and judgment upon those uh, who are responsible for this? And he ultimately tells them or the angel speaks to them and says, hold on just a little while longer because there are more coming that are going to pay with their lives as well. And now we move to the sixth seal. Now, at this point, we find ourselves again at the doorstep of a radical shift in the rest in what happens now for the rest of the book. Uh, we begin to see now after this seal and we begin to catch a hint of it in this seal, but what happens uh, after this point uh, with the breaking later of the seventh seal, we now see the trumpet uh, judgments that come down, we see the bowl judgments that come down and the earth is ultimately finally judged. But these things that we have read thus far, up to and possibly including what we're reading right now, and this is one of the hazy areas, what we've been reading to this point has happened during the first three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week. Antichrist has come to power and these things we've just described have been going on at this point for three and a half years. By the way, not in life today, we're saying in the future. So we're not currently in the tribulation period for those who may wonder based on what's going on outside. That period of time hasn't started yet. How do we know? Because no peace covenant with Israel has been signed with the Antichrist. He's not on the scene yet. When that happens though, the time that we're reading about right now is bringing us to the end of the three and a half, first half, or the time times and half a time, the first of those in the 70 weeks, or the 70th week. So that being said, let's go ahead and, um, uh, well, I guess a couple more quick things here. <laughs> um, just to further round out the picture, when Antichrist comes on the scene and Israel signs a peace covenant with him, it's important to recognize that what this means is that they have received him as their Messiah. Right? You remember how Jesus said, I come in my Father's name and you reject me, but one will come in his own name and him you'll receive. Well, ultimately that finds its fulfillment in that. And so the Antichrist has convinced Israel that he is their Messiah. He's a false Messiah, that's why we call him Antichrist. He's not the anointed of God, he's not the one that God has put his anointing on to be ultimately the Messiah, but rather he's a counterfeit and Israel has received him. Now this of course is something that is not shocking, not only because the Bible says it's gonna happen, 
but because Israel has throughout her history gone after idolatry. Uh, literally from the start. You remember when the Ten Commandments were given and Moses comes down the mountain. What does he find? I mean, you know, the ink's not even dry, as it were. And so this is a, a, a habit for them throughout their history. Now, I'm not, I'm not getting on them and putting them down for that because they're not the only ones that have been guilty of idolatry in their lives, have they? We've probably fallen into it ourselves at some point. But this was a habit of God's people in the Old Covenant. And so when the, when the Antichrist comes, they, having rejected their true Messiah, will receive the false Messiah. And part of, that reason, part of the reason for that may be because he gives them, in this covenant, the ability to do something they've been wanting to do for a really, really long time, and that is to rebuild their temple. Now, the scriptures tell us there will be a third temple, a rebuilt temple. Um, how do we know this? Because Paul talks about this Antichrist, this man of sin, this son of perdition, who goes into the holy place in the temple and declares himself to be God and demands to be worshipped above all that is called God. It is also here that the image that the second beast, the false prophet, it's here that the, uh, he erects this image uh, and demands that it be worshipped. This is an image of the first beast or the Antichrist. And so the Bible is very clear about talking about this. As a matter of fact, not just Paul, but Jesus talks about the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place in Matthew 24. Um, when the Bible talks about these things, we ought not see them as figurative. After all, why would we? What reason would we have to decide that when the Bible talks about these things in the last days, that we should assume that they're metaphorical? That's an inconsistent hermeneutic. In the Old Testament, for example, we're going to read today about earthquakes and things like this happening. And some people will see that as being metaphorical, as just the shaking of, of ideas and people's worlds crashing down in this kind of thing. Why would we see it that way? Why would we not see when the Bible says that there is an earthquake that it's not literal? What reason would we bring to bear? Well, this is apocalyptic literature, therefore it needs to be taken metaphorically. You're starting with an assumption. Throughout the scriptures, God has spoken prophetically. He has made his truth known. He's made his upcoming deeds known. As a matter of fact, doesn't he say that he will do nothing apart from that which he tells his prophets, the servants, his uh, servants, the prophets? In other words, he is letting the world know, and in particular, his people know. In the Old Covenant, Israel, and the New Covenant, the church, through the scriptures, he has made known what is coming. And since he has literally done these things in the past, we have a precedent by which to assume that when he speaks of these things happening in the future, that they ought to be taken at their word, at face value. I'm not saying that there aren't metaphorical things in Scripture. I'm not saying that there aren't times that God uses allegory to make a point. But unless the passage gives you a clear reason to see it other than straightforwardly, literally, face value, you don't assume a certain kind of a hermeneutic or a way of interpretation to bring to bear on it. You simply let the passage speak and you understand it as it is given. Okay? In other words, you start with that. And then short of any reason to see it otherwise, you just you, you interpret it this way. So when we read what we're about to read, we're about to move into a period of time where actual cataclysms begin to come on the earth. And they serve a purpose. And so let's read the passage here 
And we'll begin to, to understand what I'm, what I'm alluding to here. Verse 12, I looked when he, speaking of the lamb, Jesus, broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth, and a fig, uh, as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And then the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders of the rich, uh, and the rich and the strong, and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Wow, okay. Things are starting to get pretty heavy. Now, Jesus in Matthew 24, as a matter of fact, let's turn to Matthew 24. Bless you. In Matthew 24, there's a couple of places where he begins to speak about these kinds of things happening. And we'll just read a couple of them. Of course, I'll always encourage you to read all of Matthew 24. By the way, um, one of the, one of the uh, you know, we started by talking about how there's different understandings of the timing of the rapture and those kinds of things. Um, there is pre-trib, there is mid-trib, there is pre-wrath, there is post-trib, there is amillennial. Those are the main concepts, and any other views fall either under or close to one of those. Um, one of the fundamental principles in understanding this period of time we're talking about is having a proper understanding of Matthew 24. Matthew 24, and if you've never thought about this, this may come as a shock to you. And I'm not trying to be shocking, but this is something that if you've never thought about, it will completely... Uh, it'll cause you to stop in your tracks and consider your understanding of the timing of the rapture and, and this period of time that we're talking about, Daniel's 70th week. Matthew 24 does not have the church in view at all. Okay? The church is not in view in Matthew 24. That is a fundamentally important thing to understand. And let me take a minute on that. I've already apologized many times that I take the scenic route, so I'm not going to keep apologizing for it. But hopefully there's, this will help clarify things when we talk about such things. When Jesus was speaking, Matthew 24, when he was preaching the Olivet Discourse, who was he talking to? Jews. Now, the argument is made that the disciples... And those who believed in him would become the church when the Holy Spirit was ultimately sent and, and they were received. But that hasn't happened yet, okay? And to begin to read future things into the past text in order to use that text to justify things in the future is not a healthy hermeneutic. When Jesus uh, gives them the Olivet Discourse, they are in the temple. He is speaking about the temple being destroyed. He references Daniel's prophecy in chapter 9, verses prophecy, which, by the way, if you... Because not only does it tell you about these 70 weeks, of which we're in the 70th now and what we're reading, um, but it also tells you who's in view in that prophecy. Seventy weeks are appointed 
to your people and your holy city. Daniel, this prophecy pertains to the Jews and to Jerusalem. It could not be more clear who these words are aimed at and pointed toward and refer to and pertain to. Does that mean that other groups and other believers won't be affected during that time? No, of course not. Of course they will. But the reason for this prophecy has to do with Israel. When Jesus in Matthew 24 is expanding on Daniel's prophecy and makes reference to it, really at the center of, of chapter 24, the Jewish nature of what he says, the warnings about the Sabbath, the reference to the abomination of desolation in the holy place, the Jewish nature of what he's talking about reinforces the idea that that is who's in view in Matthew 24. The church has not been born yet, so why would the disciples have read the church into that? And if they wouldn't have, why would we? Now, we do understand things after the resurrection, after the Holy Spirit comes, after there are, and even in John 20, where Jesus breathes, or, uh, yeah, John 20, where Jesus breathes on the disciples, they receive the Holy Spirit. They become now what we would call New Testament believers at that point. By and large, though, the church is not born until later when all of a sudden multitudes receive the Holy Spirit, and, and they ultimately are born again. But the church, at the point that Jesus is speaking, has not been born yet. And yes, it is known in his mind that the church is coming. Yes, there have been allusions to the, the idea of this called-out assembly in that. But there is no actual reason to read the church into Matthew 24. As a matter of fact, even the one place that is most often read into being the church, uh, when it talks about how there will be two in the field, one will be taken, one will be left, right? That's not referring to the rapture. Matter of fact, Jesus is talking about him establishing his kingdom in that context. There will be one that will be taken in judgment and one will be left to go into the millennium. Okay? And he's not talking 50%, by the way. He's simply talking about the idea that there are two groups of people. One group will enter into the millennium as believers. One group will not. But rather they will await judgment ultimately. So... It's important that we understand the context of these things for lots of reasons, but not the least of which is that we understand what we're reading and what it means in the context in which it's written. Now, this takes work. This takes effort. Like I said, um, you know, books are written, thick books on the differing perspectives, and every one of these perspectives has a phone book of its own, a big, thick theological treatise on it. And so sometimes that intimidates people from, from reading the scriptures and trying to understand these things. But let me uh, assure you that it's worth it. It's worth it to do your best to read these things, but to remember a few basic principles, the, found, the most foundational of which in scriptural interpretation is to have a consistent hermeneutic. I keep using that word because I want it to be familiar, but a hermeneutic simply means an approach to interpretation. If you are inconsistent in the way that you interpret Scripture, you're going to run into all kinds of problems. Here's another one. We'll come to Revelation 12 at some point. Who is the featured person in Revelation 12? I'll give you a hint. It's a woman. Well, okay. Yeah, that's the answer ultimately. But there's a woman with the sun and moon and 12 stars, right? And so there's all kinds of interpretations of what this means. Oh, this is the church. Oh, this is whatever... 
Where have we seen a woman with the sun, moon, and stars around her previously in Scripture? In Genesis chapter 37, when Joseph gets a dream about the sun, uh, the sun, the moon, the stars, and such, and his dad, Jacob, interprets it. Are your mother and I going to bow down like your brothers? Who are the sun, moon, and stars? Jacob, you know, the family, the, the sons, all this. It's Israel. So when we see this image appear in Revelation chapter 12, we don't have to wonder what it means. We don't have to wonder what the interpretation is. It's Israel who gives birth to the Messiah, who is raised up and taken away, and she runs off into the wilderness being persecuted by the dragon, who is Satan. This is not only true of Israel's history, but it also becomes even uh, accentuated once again uh, in, in the last days under Antichrist. Again, if we don't employ a, a consistent means of interpretation, you can make the Bible say all kinds of things. Even well-intentioned, you might misunderstand if you don't let the Bible ultimately um, set, the, uh, set the agenda for its own interpretation. So that all said, when we move now into the sixth seal in Revelation chapter 6, verse 12, again, the sixth seal brings our attention once again to earth. And by the earth, I mean, in this case, the earth and the sky and even the, the visible universe in that are sort of in view here. Uh, or earth and sometimes we refer to the sky and space and then heaven as the three heavens. The sky being the first heaven, the stars and the universe being the second, and then heaven where God dwells being the third. Uh, Paul would refer to this one. He's referring to himself, really, but he's speaking of himself in the third person as one who went to the third heaven and saw things that were un unlawful to utter. The first heaven is where we live, the sky and air and the atmosphere and these kinds of things. There, is, there are disturbances and cataclysms that now begin to happen in our realm in the first and second heaven, really, as we begin to see it unfold. And I think there's a reason why that is. And this is why I made such a point of why we ought not to allegorize these things, but to see it as being exactly what is going to happen. Uh, and I have a particular penchant for taking the Bible at its word in these things. Y'all are familiar in Ezekiel 38 and 39. There's a point at which hailstones come down from heaven, right? Joshua 10 style. In Joshua 10, in Ezekiel's prophecy, or not, not hailstones, a fire comes from heaven in Ezekiel 38 and 39. But when we see these things happening, there is a tendency to want to sort of explain them as something other than what the scriptures say they are. There's all kinds of fun things to hear about Joshua 10 and the various things that are purported. But in, in Ezekiel, the thought is these are missiles coming down and, and, and not, you know, conventional kinds of warfare or nuclear warfare and that kind of thing. But there's this phrase that goes on throughout Ezekiel 38 and 39, that they may know that I am the Lord. Now, I'm not sure what nuclear holocaust would necessarily cause people to think, oh, that's the Lord. You know, we would think it's, you know, mutually assured destruction and this kind of thing. But you see fire coming down from heaven? Kind of the way Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed? You're in Joshua 10. You see hailstones come down. And the interesting thing about the targeting systems on these asteroids, they only took out the enemy. Israel's soldiers were not struck at all. That they might know he's the Lord right? So when we see these things happening in, in, on earth, on, 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 you know, the terrestrial things, when we see the, 
the atmospheric things or the astronomical cataclysms that are going to be described both here and later in the book, let's not be so quick to say, oh, this is really just speaking of, you know, nations having issues or world's pe people's worlds cr cr uh, you know, crumbling down and that. No, let's let the passage say what it says. This, by the way, is one of the reasons why I do take a pre-tribulational perspective, because it is the one perspective that urges you to take the word simply at its word and does not require having to parse things in different ways. Now, I know people would take some exception to that, but I would stand on that. I think it, it, it allows you to take the scripture most plainly at its word without having to do much else. And so, um, anyway, so that being said again, I looked, verse 12, I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun uh, became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind and the sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Um, these kinds of visuals are seen throughout the Old Testament. It's one of the reasons why the book of Revelation feels so much like an Old Testament book is because these kinds of events and, and things that God is both talking about doing and in some cases did in the Old Testament, uh, this is very consistent. We see this. As a matter of fact, let's turn to uh, a couple of passages. Like, let's turn to Joel, for example. In Joel chapter 2, we probably know this passage more from it's being quoted by Peter in Acts chapter 2. But it comes, from, uh, it comes from the book of Joel. And Peter, by the way, uses this passage to point out the fact that at that point, we had now officially moved into the period of time known as the last days. Okay, and this is the prophecy he points to. Uh, verse 28 to start in. It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind and your sons and daughters will prophesy and your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and I will display wonders in the sky and on earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved or delivered. And we, we're, again, we're familiar with this because we remember Peter saying it in that first sermon. And he refers to this as the starting point of the last days, but it culminates in the very things that Joel is talking about. In other words, in Revelation chapter 6 and in the plagues that will come later, the trumpet judgments, the bull plagues, and these things, these are things that are not sort of wacky, out of left field, where do these ideas come from? This is what God has talked about throughout history. And I pointed out a few, uh, a few Sundays ago that when part of the reason God says these things is explained in the last verse we just read. And it comes about that any who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. The implication being, these things are coming, call on the name of the Lord. It's like God has warned for millennia that the day is coming. In the book of Revelation, the day is here. But he's told about it for millennia. A lot of people have a problem with God bringing judgment one day, as if it's unfair. That's because we're usually wanting to justify what we're doing that God will need to judge. Thankfully, in Christ, our sins have been judged. They're done. Now, that should give us a sense of confidence, but it should also break our hearts for those who are outside of the grace of God. But God is warning perpetually throughout human history 
He's actually given his word, you know? When we say, when we say open God's word, what we're saying is open this book in which we see the totality of God's word to mankind. He has given this to us. It's kind of like if we leave a note on the counter. Don't eat any snacks. Dinner's coming. Right? And you go and do it anyway. And then maybe you don't get dessert or something like that. Whatever, you know? Is it anyone else's fault but yours that you didn't get dessert? No. The note was sitting right there in front of the cookie jar. You decided to ignore it. And you took a cookie and you faced the consequences. Now, that's a really nice little kid way of talking about what we're talking about here. But the idea is that God has made it known throughout history that these things are coming. Matter of fact, he's gone into great detail to talk about what things will look like right before it happens. And he's also urged us to not be casual about the fact that we might go see him today, whether it be through death or whether it be by rapture. We could see him today. And by the way, Christians are not the only ones who can open this book and read it. Uh, I read the Bible a lot before I, was a, before I was a believer, which was a rare thing as a Catholic, by the way. But I was really interested in some of it. Now, most of it was Old Testament, but this same Bible, this same Joel chapter 2, was there when I read it as an unbeliever as it is now when I am a believer, which means every unbeliever has an opportunity Basically, to pick up a copy of the greatest seller in all of history, you'd be hard-pressed to go to a place where you couldn't find a Bible somewhere. There are some places, obviously, but by and large, you can get a Bible anywhere. That's the length that God has gone. As a matter of fact, we mentioned last week, but later in the book, we see that God actually employs an angel to go and preach the everlasting gospel flying across the skies to make sure nobody misses this. And by the way, you will notice at the end of the passage we just read in, in Revelation chapter 6, they know what's going on. Okay, we'll come to that. But they are fully aware of what is going on around them. And we'll talk about that. But these cataclysms that are going on, these, these events that are taking place, the, the, the sun and the moon and then the shaking of the earth and the, the mountains and islands coming on more and these kinds of things, these are, these are shocking events that are taking place in order to shock the world into recognizing what's happening. Time is up for subtle little hints. Time is up for things that you might miss. No, in other words, in this period of time, nobody who's alive in it is going to stand before God and say, I have no idea this is what, you know. And, and by the way, when it talks about the sky being rolled up like a scroll, I will be fascinated to see what that looks like when it happens. But the why it would happen to me is not, is not hard for me to imagine. We live in the first heaven here on earth with the atmosphere. We, we can't really get outside of this without special apparatus. We certainly can't get to the third heaven without God bringing us there. What if God decided to roll away that which separated the barrier of heaven and earth? and the whole world knew it. Now, that may sound like a little bit of a stretch, because after all, the physics of that would be unbelievable. 
not to the one who made physics, not to the one who could make the sun stand still for just enough time to let Joshua finish what he needed to finish, not for the one who could pay taxes out of a fish's mouth in the Sea of Galilee. It's no big deal. If you can believe Genesis 1-1, the rest of the Bible is a piece of cake, right? The heavens roll up like a scroll. If that happened literally, it would make it even more easy to understand how at the end of the passage, everybody on the earth is hiding in caves, wanting to die because the wrath of God has come. This is not heaven saying this. These are people on the earth. They fully understand what they are now facing. Um, one noticeable element that is absent from any of this is anything resembling repentance or belief. At the end of Joel's prophecy that we read, there was a call to call upon the name of the Lord. That's the one thing they're not doing. Even though they are standing, literally, hiding, cowering, maybe not standing, but at this point they're cowering as this is happening. If there was ever a time to get right with God, you'd think you'd know, and when, especially when you know that's what's happening, you'd think you would do it, but they don't. For those who have a problem with judgment in that day, recognize these are the people who are being judged. Those who even under such excruciatingly clear circumstances are still saying no to God. What kind of arrogance must that take to be at, under that circumstance with your potentially last opportunity and to say no. The story of told, is told of um, Joseph Stalin. This is his uh, granddaughter, I think, who told the story. Uh, it was either his daughter or granddaughter told the story of when she was, I think, with him in his dying moments. Uh, Joseph Stalin, of course, was responsible for the death of millions. Um, staunch atheist. In his dying breath on his deathbed, he sat up, clenched his fist toward the heavens, and breathed his last. In that last dying breath, angrily, arrogantly, saying, No, God. It's interesting to me that an atheist who doesn't believe God exists feels the need to do that in their last moment. I'm not being flippant about that. This is the arrogance that resides in the hearts of men and women around the world. And in that day, it will just simply be on full display. This is not something new. It's just that the circumstances have finally brought out the last drop of their arrogance and rebellion, and it's on display. Let the rocks fall on us rather than believe. What do they think is going to happen when the rocks do fall on them? Paul says, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and the glory of God the Father. That's what happens next. Again, verse 15. The kings of the earth, again, the high and mighty, the rulers, the leaders, the great men, those who are seen as great, maybe seen as heroes and brave people in that time. 
the commanders and the rich, those who ultimately command uh, places like, you know, who have authority over, uh, the word there literally speaks of one who has command over a thousand troops. So we're talking about those who are in charge of militaries and that great, strong, leadership kind of men. Uh, the rich and the strong, okay? Lofty kinds of people, but not only them, but also slaves and free men, they all hid themselves. In other words, all people are sort of being covered in this description. Those who would stand to be able to feel like they could stick their chest out to God when he ultimately does these things, as well as those who don't. They're all crying out for the mountains to fall. Um, There's, a, of course, a, an episode you're familiar with in the Gospels where a soldier comes to Jesus and he's pleading for the life of one of his servants. And Jesus is going to go there and heal him. And the soldier says, hey, you know something? You don't even have to come to my house. I'm not really worthy of such a, a blessing, but I'm a military leader. When I say jump, my men say how high. You simply talk to this thing and it'll be done. And Jesus, interestingly, kind of looks at those around him and says, I have not found faith like this even among my own people. And he says, it'll be done, as you said. And he goes back, and sure enough, the man was healed at that time. That's the proper attitude of somebody who has such authority, has genuine, legit power, but recognizes his own incapacity in the things that matter most. Such is lacking in those who are alive at this time. So, there is something to be said about a comparison between, as are described here, those who, as the later we'll see a, a term, those who dwell on the earth, right? There's a difference between these people, those who dwell upon the earth, and those who are citizens of heaven, you and I as believers. If you're here today and you are a believer in Christ, you've put your trust in him for your salvation, you're born again, then you have no fear of these things happening to you, you're going to be with him. You have no fear of judgment coming upon you. Jesus took it. You are a citizen of heaven. Of course, the invitation is to live like that in our day, right? If we, if we, if we, if we are saved, he's working on us. He's sanctifying us, right? But you have nothing to fear in terms of judgment. However, those who don't have that have nothing else to live for but this world. And therefore, they fit the category, the qualification, the moniker, earth dweller. This is where they live. The opposite, of course, is us. We don't really live here. We work here. We habit, inhabit this place. But we all want to go where? Home, right? That's why Paul could say in Philippians 3.20, we're citizens of heaven. Our citizenship is there. We're ambassadors here of another place that we're citizens of. Therefore, again, just to follow that out, I love just to sort of call it this, but we work here. One day we're punching out and we're going home. When quitting time comes and the whistle, or more accurately, the trumpet sounds, and we're called home, that, what a glorious day that'll be. But it just accentuates the fact that we just work here. What we do here is temporary. There's nothing lasting in this world. Matter of fact, even when we talk about like faith, hope, and love, right, as Paul talks about in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, one day there will be no longer any need for faith. Why? We'll be there. One day there will be no need for hope. Why? We'll be there. 
will be living in our hope realized. Love will continue on. And I would suggest that that's the only thing in this world that is permanent. Love of God, love of each other, that's the one thing we bring with us. We're not citizens of this place, and therefore we touch lightly the things of this earth, because at the end of the day, it's all going to burn. Every last stitch of clothing in your closet, every car that you've ever owned, any house you're living in, your bank accounts, everything, it's all going away on that day. You will go on. And believe me, in heaven, you won't be saying, oh, I wish I had still had fill in the blank. <laughs> Why? Because we're not citizens of this place, and God doesn't bring that stuff with. You ever move from one house to another, and you try and make the stuff from the old house work in the new house? Some stuff does. Some stuff works, right? And generally, the stuff that you find a way to work is the stuff that is sentimental or meaningful to you, right? Somehow, the picture of the kids will always find a place. But that old couch, this end table, somehow these things, A, they don't really fit the new house. They don't look right in the new place. And secondly, they're a reminder of the old place. Um, we were thankful for the old house we lived in, but we don't miss it one bit. Uh, we like where we are now, you know. Um, when you move into the new abode, the place Jesus is preparing for us, you're not going to be wishing you had the old stuff to decorate it with. So why should it matter that much to us now? But to an earth dweller, it's everything. Why? Because it's all they have. It's everything, literally. They don't even get the concept that in this moment, everything they're holding on to in this life is meaningless. The only thing that matters now is that they turn themselves over to the Lord and they can't get themselves to do it. If you will, join me in uh, looking at Hebrews uh, chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to read a couple of passages from it. I'm going to read verses 8 through 10 and then 13 through 16. Now, of course, Hebrews 11 is this great hall of faith, right? These wonderful heroes of, of the Old Testament and that. Some are named, some are not. But they're held up as heroes because they, uh, in particular, a couple of things, one of which was is that, as it says here in verse 10, like Abraham, who was just being spoken of, uh, he was, and of course they were as well, looking for that city which has foundations whose builder and maker or whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself, uh, I'm sorry, I was going to read in verse 8, wasn't I? I kind of spoiled it, so 8 through 10. But ultimately, it's because they were looking for this builder and maker who's, uh, who uh, was God. They, therefore, they lived in tents and all this kind of a thing, ultimately temporary kinds of dwellings because they were looking beyond what they lived in right now. They understood the temporary nature of their existence here, but rather were making their way through life knowing that they were ultimately going to a place that would not fade away, but in fact ultimately was built by God as that place for them. Um, that was the inheritance they looked forward to. Verse 13, all, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country 
of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Earth dweller, citizen of heaven. If these people that we're reading about in, in Hebrews 11 would have wanted, if, if they were longing for the city they were from, they had plenty of opportunity to go back to it. But they didn't. Why? Because they were looking for that place that belongs, that is made and, and built for them by God himself, that everlasting city, that place that nothing perishes or fades away, where that reward that Peter talks about that is unperishable and never fades away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God unto salvation. This is what a believer lives for, but a non-believer has nothing like this to live for. They could. They could. And that's why the last moments we're reading about there in, in, in verse 17, where they recognize what's coming upon them, but rather than repent, they're calling on the rocks to fall upon them. They, they don't. They won't. What a horrifying and tragic circumstance. It's, it's, it's terrifying to imagine what it would feel like to be in that day. Praise the Lord, I will never have to be there. But to be there, and in the face of your demise, to still be holding on and resisting and saying, no, not me, uh-uh. We mentioned, um, I think it was when we read Nahum last week, could say just as well, and having read the passage in Job today, um, God's justice and his grace and mercy walk hand in hand. He brings judgment because it's right. It's not, a, and probably nobody would argue that it is right for justice to be served because the opposite of that is to allow evil and wickedness to continue. Anytime you, you bring judgment on wickedness and evil, it's a good thing. Why is this such an issue? Well, because this is finally justice. In other words, there is no really going on past this point. I mean, there's the millennial kingdom in that. But as the judgments fall and as the, the wrath and everything is poured out in full measure in these last days during this last part of the, well, as we move into the, the last part of the 70th week, and these things finally just fall in full measure upon the earth, the argument against it is, is that it's happening to me and it's happening now. I believe in justice when it's down the road and it's on you. But when it's now and it's on me, I got a problem. Now again, I'm a believer. The justice and judgment we're talking about was not set aside. It was not flippantly pitched out of the way because God felt like being nice to some people. No, he satisfied his justice in Christ taking our sins on the cross. And by faith, we appropriate his righteousness, which is then given to us who believe. But those who don't, don't have that. And so therefore, they have to now face what lies ahead. And they're doomed. Heavy, but necessary. Both in terms of what it is and in terms that we're talking about it. I promise you, nobody's going to come to this church and enter into that period of time feeling like, where'd this come from? Whether or not I owe it to you, I owe it to God. 
people cannot enter that time unaware. Um, that's why we talk about these things. And sometimes, again, admittedly, it's sobering. That's because it is sobering. It's not just my delivery. The topic is necessary. It's important that we understand it, comprehend it, because one day we're going to answer for it. And to be on the side of being bought and paid for by the blood of Christ is the one way to escape that. The Bible tells us, and we're going to celebrate communion in just a moment, so this is probably as good a place as any to go ahead and, and take a minute here. But the Bible tells us, God's Word tells us of a time when the Son of God entered the world, incarnate, deity comes into the world to take on a body of flesh for the ultimate purpose of paying for our sins, of dying, shedding his blood, dying in our place, that we might be made free. Like Paul would say in 2 Corinthians, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, he took our guilt, our shame, our sin, that which separated us from God, that which would deservedly bring this justice we're talking about upon us. He took it on himself and he gave us, as it were, righteousness like a garment to put on and cover us so that when judgment finally comes upon this world, we will be exempted from it. Not that justice wasn't served. It's just that someone got in the way and took it for us. How gracious, how loving, how kind. And that's why we celebrate communion. That's why we celebrate the gospel. That's why we share the gospel. That's why we live the gospel. Because this is what Jesus did for me, and this is what Jesus can do for you. So when we come to the table and we share in communion, we take the bread and the cup, what are we doing? We're remembering the single act that took away all of our sins, washed them clean as he took them upon his own shoulders. It's horrifying. It's sobering. It's heartbreaking to think of what Jesus endured for us. But because of his great love, he did. And that's why we also remember and even celebrate his love. Undeserved, unwarranted, unearned, given freely. That we might ultimately be made clean, free and forgiven in him. So I'm going to end there for today as we move into a time of communion. But I will say that the seventh seal, which we will end up reading about in chapter 8... Uh, becomes sort of the introduction of the trumpet judgments that are going to come. Chapter 7 in between is something of an interlude in between where some things take place that we'll look at next time. But um, we're going to go ahead and close there for today. And uh, for the sake of time, I'm not going to do a Q&A today. But uh, if you have questions, you're welcome to come up afterwards or if you want to save them for next week. But for now, we're going to go ahead and pray. We're going to invite the ushers to bring the communion uh, cups to you all. And uh, we're going to go ahead while we worship and take a moment and take the bread together, and then we'll take the cup together as well. So, Father, we thank you for our time as we consider your grace and your goodness hand in hand with your justice. Help us to understand the rightness of what is one day coming. And for any who are unprepared for that, that they would take heed to that warning in advance that you have given, that this day is coming. But since it is not yet, today is surely the day of salvation. And so, Father, for any who are within the sound of my voice, who are hearing these words, I would pray for them right now, that they would no longer keep you at arm's length, no longer say no to you in their arrogance and rebellion, but instead humble themselves and recognize their desperate need, much like the soldier in the gospel account, 
to realize that he is incapable of doing what he needed done. But when it comes to our salvation, that has never been more true. And so if that's you and you're finally at a place where you're ready now to come and receive the free gift of God's grace and forgiveness in Christ, I want to invite you to pray. Pray with me now. Heavenly Father, I confess to you that I am a sinner, that I have been a rebel pushing you away, seeking to do my own things, my own will, to do my own way, that which only you could do in Christ. And so today I surrender. No longer do I want to be an earth dweller, but rather I want to be a citizen of heaven. Thank you that Jesus died to pay for my sins, to wash me clean and forgiven as I could never do. Thank you for the grace that he brings in having paid my debt. And I thank you that he rose from the dead the third day and lives forever, interceding for me, guiding me, and one day I'll get to go home and see him face to face, unashamed and unafraid, washed clean by his blood. I pray that you'd help me to live for you each and every day until I see you. I thank you that your judgment will not fall on me anymore. And I thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to go ahead and worship for a bit. And again, I'll invite the ushers to bring the communion plates to everybody.
this is my body, which is broken for you. And as often as we eat of this bread, we remember what Jesus did for us in allowing his body to be broken, put on the cross, ultimately to pay our sins. And so we partake in remembrance of him. stand. Let's sing a closing song together. I see the Lord see 
Sunday, we uh, went ahead and Janet got us a cake for August birthdays. Anybody got an August birthday today? Oh, all right. Stephanie. Oh, and Angela, too. And Michelle. Hannah. And Hannah, too. You know, if I'm not mistaken, by the way, do we miss somebody's July birthday? Is that Bobby? Did we miss your birthday? Were you here? Oh, Joe. Jojo. Oh, okay. Yeah, we're off. Okay. That's right. All right. You too? Oh, all right. Leah's in August here too. That's awesome. Okay. I think we need another cake next week. Oh, yeah. Of August? You didn't raise your hand, did you? Oh, you raised it. Okay. Okay. Put up your hands again. It's your birthday so we can get your names as we sing just now, okay? All right. Here we go. Let's start with the little ones first. All right. Let's start with Hannah. Happy birthday. Keep your hands up. Do you? Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Hannah, Michelle, Angela, Stephanie, Doran, Leo. Someone else? Who? Karen. <laughs> Happy birthday to you. All right. Wow. Well, praise the Lord. We've got cake and coffee and stuff in the lobby. Please help yourselves and stick around and enjoy. And God bless you all. Have a great week.